Hello, and welcome to the LVP Architects podcast. So in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the procurement types. So I won't go through them all, but I'll go through the main ones that you should really be aware of what ones are available, when they're appropriate and when they're not appropriate is a decision that you and the QS and the client will come to important for this moment in time because there will be a focus in it in the exam and you will need to cover it in your case study as well. Procurement routes aren't complicated as such it's just clear understanding of of what they are. So simply put a procurement route is the method in which the design and construction of a project is to be achieved. The routes will be determined or chosen based on the type of building project that the client is doing. So the main ones are traditional, design and build, management contracting, construction management, and then there are many others, prime contracting, framework agreements are a type of procurement, and there are more than that that filter down. And I won't I won't really talk about the others. I'll I'll talk about the main ones. So as this is focused predominantly for the part three exam when answering a question that asks you to suggest a procurement route, obviously you, you should have learned what procurement routes are, but a quick rule of thumb that can help is called the constraint triangle. And what that is, is it's an inverted triangle and at each point there are specific items. So one's cost, one's quality and the other is time. And it's inverted because the top two are pros and the bottom single point is a con. So if you take, for example, the traditional route, the route would favour cost and quality at the expense of time control. So in a design and build, however, the the top two would be of the inverted pyramid would be cost and time, but at the expense of quality. Figure out each procurement route and what the pros and cons are and try and use that triangle to help you really quickly to just start drafting which procurement routes you think are right. And and it helps you justify your choice. It's like I say, it's it's a rule of thumb, so it's just a quick thing. But there are many, many factors to consideration when choosing a procurement route. The other thing to consider is when you're answering questions in the exam is you've got to figure out what the procurement route is if it's not stated. The reason you need to know that is you need to understand where you are contractually in all of that. You will know what your architect's role is because of your scope of works and your appointment, but who is your client? Is it the owner of the land or is it the contractor? Will you be novated from one to another on a certain procurement types? So I'll just touch on these briefly to get it in your head and it's quite good to diagram. You you need to diagram as well the sort of contractual relationships between these and try and figure them all out when you're in your case study and for your exam as well. It, it helps you understand where you fit in all of this. So we'll start with um, traditional construction procurement. So basically the aim of this is that the client will have a full design carried out by an architect and the design team and they're appointed directly to the client. So this full design then forms part of the tender documentation. Where a contractor is given the tender documentation, they will price on. And what's within that is 
all the construction drawings and specifications relevant to understand and price accordingly. So that can be a clear cost. So with this, usually the tender returns are, are a lump sum basis um, subject to ensuring that everything is fully compliant. And, we, and th- that forms the basis of the contract sum. Any post-contract changes will be at the cost and program risk of the client. So one thing to consider with a traditional is to get to the point where a contractor can cost all of this works, you need to have quite a thorough and detailed drawings and specification for them to accurately cost. If there's any changes later on, then the contractor can claim additional costs and it could add time to the program. So as you'll probably be aware, in order for you to get a thorough design detailed up, that means time. So in a traditional, you usually have a larger portion of time in the program that's dedicated to produce this information before it goes out to tender. In that scenario, your direct appointment is to the client and the contractor will be directly appointed to the client. There is no contractual relationship between you and the contractor. So the next one that I'll briefly talk about, and it is these are this is all very brief, is the design and build procurement. And the principles of the design and build is that a contractor is appointed to not just build, but to partially design or fully design the building for con- construction. So what that means is in the early stages, the employer's requirements that form part of the tender document, so you still go through the same tendering procedure, will be a lot smaller in respect of detail. The only detail that you'll have is anything that is sacrosanct, anything that is critical to that design that you do not want changed in any way. And then there will be design, there'll be contractor design portion that allows the contractor to continue the design or push the design further at their discretion um, and they take that design responsibility on so as you can figure with that it means that the earlier stages of design and producing the tender is shorter but there will be an element that's increased in the construction stage which has to accommodate the contractor designing those elements to be able to build so you'll probably be more familiar with design and build because it's incredibly popular and how that will work then is the the architect is appointed directly to the client up until the tender point. And then once the tenders are in and the contractor is being appointed, usually, not always, but usually the architect will be novated across so that they will have a direct contractual link with the contractor and not the client. So there's a severed responsibility. It doesn't always happen. You know, the contractor could have their own design team and not wish to appoint anyone else. It could be part of the contract, at the, at the building contract at the beginning, that the contractor must novate and it's part of the terms. Also, there are instances where the original architect will remain client-side, but the same architectural practice on a separate appointment is appointed to the contractor. And the point of the architect staying on client side or a client having an architect once a contractor is appointed is for that architect and design team to 
to review any information submitted by the contractor and make sure it's following the original ERs, so the employer's requirements, making sure that they approve on the behalf of the client any alternative suggestions by the contractor. So in this one, it's important to note that if you're the architect working for the contractor, your direct line is to the contractor. So if you want to suggest any changes, it has to go through the contractor to the client and the client's architect and design team will review that proposal and it'll come back. So if you take that, um, uh, the inverted triangle, what you'll have is you'll have at the top, top two points are cost and time. So the contractor has agreed a lump sum to build and will say this is how long it'll take to build and that's it, that's in the contract. But at the expense of quality. So the negative of design and build is that it's in the contractor's hands and if the employer's requirements aren't specific enough, the contractor has room for alternatives and changes. So put really crudely, if the wall construction, if you're not going to specify specifically how it has to be built, the contractor is at free to build it as they see fit that is of benefit to them financially and does of course meet the requirements. So meets the U values, is structurally stable, looks like the planning drawings or whatever else is in the, the ERs. So it allows them to build it as they see fit. Obviously they've given a lump sum. If they can, if they can make savings by altering materials or speeding up the process, that's of their benefit, then they can. So the other thing to this is single and two-stage tender, and that can occur in traditional as well, but it's predominantly used in design and build. So the idea is if you have a single-stage DMB, it means there is one moment where there is a tender and cost from the contractor. If you have a two-stage, it means there are two points where a contractor bids and provides costs. A two-stage means that there are two opportunities where a contractor, contractors, will put in a bid or cost for a tender element. And, and the thinking behind a two-stage is that the first stage will happen quite early on while the the design is progressing. So you may have a design you're, you're thinking about coming to planning and you appoint a contractor to advise the client what would be the best way to go about it. So, you know, whether currently in the market, if you go steel frame, it will be most cost effective and be quicker. Or that the current market is saying, you know, if you do this all out of brick, there is huge brick delays um, or there is limited brick layers. So that's going to add additional time or there's a huge demand, so cost of brickwork is high, and they advise you look at alternative cladding. You know, so they bring their sort of expertise on not just those things, but other things, so that by the time you get to planning, you may have altered it enough that it saved you some time and some costs, or given you a bit more cost certainty as well at that point. So that when you do start producing the ERs and you finally go out to tender, that contractor and other contractors are invited to tender on that, and it's a little bit more accurate and reflects better what the cost and the time 
and is more favourable, you kind of know the figures a bit better that you're expecting. So if you if a contractor is appointed on the first stage, they're not guaranteed the second stage. It's kind of an unwritten rule that the likelihood is going to be stronger because you've got that positive relationship, hopefully. So those are the two sort of most popular traditional DMB, well DNB is the most popular, but traditional and DNB, so that's single stage, two stage. Now you really have to go and study this further. You you need to do your own research. You can't take what I've said as sacrosanct. You know, I may have said something or phrased it incorrectly. So you need to still do your research. Uh, but hopefully this is sort of guiding you as it's not overly complicated. The procurement routes are, you know, are that. It's how do you, how do you procure the building? How do you get the design and the building? And it follows, and this is critical, it follows the Reba Planner Works. So grab the Reba Planner Works. When someone says this is DMB, see where a single stage would happen, see where a two stage, see where the tender process would be and what stages. So this you can begin to see this is all interlinked. And then where would your appointments occur? So if you were at traditional, you might be appointed up to planning with your fee already submitted for the next signing of when construction is going and you'll continue. Um, or you might be appointed to do the whole thing. Or in DMB, you might your appointment might have an ovation element in it. So when you're appointed to the original client at the beginning, and when your contract terminates and your responsibility then stops, and you become under the appointment of the contractor, and your sole responsibility is to them. So obviously there are other procurement types as well and I won't go into them depending on the scale of a project as well what's more appropriate and the type if you're doing a very bog standard office block you know is it better to go DMB because it's very repetitive system um, go with a contractor who does it day in day out that's what their bread and butter is as it were and you can go right I can get planning and then I can just hand this over and they'll continue the design based on the specification in the in the ERs and they can just do it DMB I'll know what the price is and how long it'll take and that's it I don't care about how it's constructed it'll just be there or if it's a smaller project or more unique or bespoke then traditional is more suitable but there are other procurement types so management contracting is another one and it's a form of construction procurement where basically the client for the project employs different subcontractors directly so in a traditional and a dmb the contractors at the top and they are contracted by the client but that contractor then appoints subcontractors to do the building work most large contractors actually don't really build anything they're more of managers of subcontractors in management contracting, everything is linked back to the client. So they have all the responsibility. There's a direct link to the client for all the subcontractors. So what, what they do is the, the client employs a management contractor and they contribute from an early stage and engage with all the other design team at the very beginning of how best to procure all of this. Their role is solely to manage on the client's behalf. The important thing to note about this is that the risk isn't like a traditional or a design and build. The risk for the contractor isn't on them. 
the risk is actually transferred between the subcontractors and the client. The MC is there to organise them, they oversee it. All of the risks, like I say, is client and subcontractors in their individual contracts. So the management contractor is, you know, they're there organising when when a group comes in to do, say, the foundations, when someone comes in to do the structure. So what this allows is a staggered release of information. So the architect and the design team can, say, they work out the foundations, they do as much information for the foundation that is needed to go to tender. Then that while that's tendering, they might proceed with the structure and facade information. And then when they release that for tender, the client has appointed a subcontractor to do the foundations and they're building away why the next thing is tendering and so forth. And you can kind of have this follow through. And the MC just manages this, manages the subcontractors on there and advises the architects and the design team and the client, you know, how best to do all this. Obviously, the first thing you can note is that you have to be quite good at managing all this and when the information is released and when things are tendered and when the next subcontractor is on. So any delay in information will be a delay in project, which equals a loss in cost control. So in that triangle we spoke about before, the quality and cost could be controlled with the information that you release, but the time is what's lost. So I think what you can gain from the explanation that I've given of this type of procurement is that it's actually not suitable for a small extension. (laughs) You know, it's got to be, this thing has got to be quite a complex project to require this kind of management level um, and detailed information at key stages, you know. So when is this really appropriate? So obviously there are a lot more uh, procurement routes I think because this is a really, really long podcast if I go through all the rest of them I think it's on you really to to learn it the important thing is that you understand what a procurement route is and then try and find the most suitable again it's not on you to just magically think about it all you have input from the QS um, the client themselves if they've got experience what you know you there are considerations the scale of the project the type of project, the complexity of it, where the liability lies um, or or where the client wants the liability to lie. So another consideration of when choosing procurement is, is basically how fast does the client want this thing to be built. Um, as we've mentioned, traditional could take quite a long time to design because you need the whole package there for the contractor to tender on. You know, the level of detail and specification is a lot higher. We've just mentioned about um, management contracting and how that possibly could help. But the issue, the risk there is about delays to any of that information. DMB might be a suitable procurement because there's a guarantee of time there. There could be issues that arise that delay things. But in principle, I think we'll stop here. Um I think the important thing is now you go away and hopefully you understand procurement a little bit more and obviously that there are types and you need to investigate all the other options available and how they relate to different scales of projects um, and the pros and cons and try and create the triangle. This leads on to other things. So the procurement is a route, it's not contract. Some people kind of get that confused. Um, 
And we'll talk about building contracts in other podcasts. I think in the next podcast, I'll talk about tender. Hopefully this has been of some help. Maybe it's at least a starting place for you to investigate. As I've said, this is not sacrosanct. As always, if you found this helpful or would like to know more in respect of other study subjects that we talk about, please go to the Amazon website and purchase my ebook called Unofficial Guide to the Architectural Part 3 by LVP Architects. So tune into the next podcast, which will be on Tender. Thanks again for listening.